are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. I'm so pleased that you could join me today on a Thursday afternoon. As you can tell right away, I'm not in my normal place. I'm not at my home, in my little office, in my little studio, with my books behind me and my regular camera in front of me. Uh, Once again, I'm at a city park in Camden, Tennessee. My son has some property near here, and I've been here for a few days helping him do some work on the property, having a lot of fun with that. And uh, since I'm on the road, I thought, why not be able to have a time when we can have our Q&A here? And so this is either my third or fourth time doing it from this particular place. I'm at a spot that gets pretty good cell coverage, and uh, it seems undisturbed. Uh, right in front of me is a softball field, and I got a feeling that maybe the Lady Lions of Camden High School are going to come out and have a practice, maybe before we even finished. But until then, or until we're interrupted, I'll just stay here and uh, we're gonna have our hour long time where we take questions and answers from you. Let me begin with some preliminaries. First of all, I do wanna give a greeting to our TWR360 audience. TWR stands for Trans World Radio, and this is a marvelous work that for many, many years has been doing something great in um, global missions. Originally with their shortwave radio broadcast where they reach all over the world with incredible Christian and evangelistic and discipleship-oriented materials in local languages over shortwave radio. But then again, now over their online presence, uh, TWR360. We just welcome all our international friends from that great ministry, and we're very pleased to be partners with you here, uh, here on a Thursday afternoon. So uh, very pleased that you're letting us know where you come from and that we've gathered here together. Uh, In just a few moments, I'm gonna start answering questions, but again, I I don't expect any of you to really all pay any notice or care, but um, I've just had a wonderful time the last few days. Prior to my coming to Tennessee, I spent the weekend uh, with some marvelous people down in uh, South Philly, uh, Kensington neighborhood there in Philadelphia. Uh, with the ministry known as The Rock. And uh, these people are doing a marvelous work in a community that needs a lot of help. Uh, They say it's the poorest congressional district in the United States. Lots of drugs, lots of crime, lots of difficulty. And the folks, Buddy Osborne and Craig there, are doing a marvelous, marvelous job and their whole team uh, really reaching the community. And so I spent the weekend with them and had a marvelous time doing it. And then following this, I'm going to be at Refuge Chapel, Refuge Church in um, St. Cloud, Minnesota with my good friend, Pastor Dominic Dinger there. And so very, very pleased to make it. Hey, I see my wife give a chat. Ingalil, so nice to see you. Great to talk to you on the phone today. And um, it's wonderful. My wife is in Africa right now doing a remarkable dental mission work. Uh, that she's been doing for quite a long time, many, many years. She's gone to many countries and she's with a marvelous, marvelous team there getting together and doing dental work uh, for people who wouldn't normally get it. Uh, People of all ages, a lot of children as well. And so again, hello to my wife there in Africa. Let me take a look here uh, at some of the questions that have come in from our moderator. Uh, Devin is moderating today. 
And so you can, of course, uh, just send in your questions and let De uh, Devin know, and Devin will forward them on to me. Um, normally, I don't see the chat, but the way I'm looking at right now uh, on my phone is I see that the chat things, and so I'll be able to see a few more of your chats there. So Pastor Jim, Calvary Arlington, uh, hi. It's good to see you. Nice comment there. All right, uh, let me go on here. James asks a question. Can you please explain our position in heaven uh, as kings reigning for eternity? Elsewhere, it is reigning with Christ. Whom do we reign with in eternity? In the new heaven and the new earth, we are all his people. There's no one else in eternity. Okay, James, that's a great question. And James, uh, here is the idea. The Bible does say that we will reign with as kings and priests with Jesus Christ, and that we will reign as kings and priests, a royal priesthood, um, as uh, daughters and sons of a king. We have a kingly presence as well, a royal uh, lineage, if you want to put it that way. And your question is simply this, if it says that we are kings in heaven, so to speak, then who do we reign over? And I've got two ways to answer that question. First of all, we have no idea what God will do when this um, chapter of his plan of the ages is completed. I'm enthralled by the verse in the book of Revelation where at the end of all that God has done, he says, I make all things new. And I think we have very little comprehension exactly what that newness of all things means. And so it may be that God will have another type of creation after our old edition of his plan of the ages is finished. That's all possible, isn't it? And maybe in that um, coming edition of God's unfolding plan of the next age, so to speak, uh, maybe it'll be more evident, more clear to us what it means that we are kings and priests. So we don't really know, and I would say can't quite comprehend what the future may hold. Second thing I would say is this. I think you're making a little bit of a leap in logic by saying that a person can't be a king without someone to reign over. Note this, that um, God, even before he created anything, was still a king. And God existed as a great king even before he created anything. And so I would just say that it is something for us to carefully consider that we don't need to have someone to reign over in order for us to be declared kings and priests, a royal priesthood, um, sons and daughters of the greatest king, the king of kings, for us to have that royal lineage that we have in Jesus Christ. So again, James, I hope that's helpful for you. Uh, next one comes from Jennifer who asks, is Jeremiah 3131 a good verse for a Jewish person to hear? Any other recommendations? Well, Jennifer, let me look up here. Uh, Jeremiah 3131, take a look here. 
opening up a Bible program that I wish I would have opened before we started. So Jeremiah 31, 31, which reads, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Well, Jennifer, you happen to be mentioning there one of my favorite themes in the Bible. I suppose I have a lot of favorite themes because I just love the Bible in its entirety. But, but one of my specially favorite themes in the Bible is the theme of the new covenant. And the outworking of this great theme of the new covenant is really important for us to understand. And I think that at least has the potential of being something that could really lead to the thinking, the, the, the thought process, perhaps, of a Jewish person to consider Jesus as the Messiah. Here's how I would do it. If I could converse with a Jewish person about Jeremiah 31, 31, where God promises a new covenant, I, I would ask them what they think that new covenant is. I would ask them if they think that the promise of the new covenant has been fulfilled. And I would ask them what they would comment about the words of Jesus. I believe it's in the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus said at the Last Supper that his death would be the inauguration of the new covenant. He talked about it being the new covenant in his blood, those elements of communion, the bread and the cup that we take. So um, I think that would be perhaps a very fruitful open door. Now, again, look, I, I don't believe that there are any magic keys to evangelism, uh, any magic techniques. If we always do this, if we always do something else, it'll lose. But I, I think that has the potential to be a very fruitful um, avenue of discussion with a Jewish person. And I would recommend it. Again, ask them what they think the new covenant is, ask them if they think it's been fulfilled, and ask them if they think it could be true that Jesus Christ was the one who inaugurated, who set in motion, who established the new covenant. Great line of questioning there, uh, Jennifer. Okay, a uh, question from Junebug asks, there are passages in scripture that many respected pastors believe were added by later by scribes. How can I believe that all scripture was Holy Spirit breathed and still accept that as a possibility? Okay, Junebug, that's a very interesting thing to bring up. Let's go back to our understanding of what we believe it means when we say that the scriptures are inspired by God. Now, let me lay it out on the line. I, I genuine, truly believe that the scriptures are inspired by God. I also believe that they're inerrant. Now, people put different meanings in their phrase. I'll just say, the Bible's true. When it talks about history, it's true history. When it talks about poetry, it's true poetry. When it talks about, uh, I don't know, where it touches on science, it's true science. The Bible is true. It, it has no error or mistake in it. It is inerrant. Now, what we believe is truly completely inspired by God and inerrant are what we sometimes call the autographs. In other words, what was originally written. What Luke originally wrote in the scroll when he wrote Luke and Acts. What Paul either wrote with his own hand or dictated to a scribe to be written. 
That's what we believe. What, what the, the, the term that's sometimes used is the autograph copy. That's what we believe is inspired and inerrant. Now, what we have to admit, what we have in our Bibles are not perfect copies of the autograph. And really, that's what we're getting to. These passages that are disputed, such as the end of Mark chapter 16, uh, such as the placement of the story of the woman taken in adultery uh, in John chapter 8, uh, such as that portion in the gospel of, uh, in 1 John chapter 5, known as the Johannian comma. Those places, the question isn't whether or not those are inspired. The question is, were those actually in what John or Mark or whoever wrote? So we don't claim to have absolutely perfect copies of what was originally written. What we do believe that we have are very, very good copies. Not perfect, but very good and trustworthy and reliable. And it's worth it for us to investigate these individual textual questions piece by piece, uh, passage by passage. What's the manuscript evidence? What's the historical evidence? What did the early church fathers say as they cited or that? Th those are great ways to get into that. So again, Junbug, I would just say that you can completely rest in your confidence that the scriptures are absolutely inspired by God. There are a few, now let me say relatively few. It is an extremely small proportion of the New Testament text, and then the Old Testament text is sort of in a different category altogether. You, you could say in some ways when it comes to textual criticism, even better category. But it's a very small proportion of the text that's in question. But those portions that are in question simply are in question of what was originally written? What was the autograph? So that's, that's our confidence. And that's how is, is a more kind of detailed way for us to understand the idea of the inspiration and the infallibility of the scriptures. Thanks very much for that question, Junebug. Let me go into the next question from N who asks, uh, in my country, secular music is considered a sin. In the U.S., Christians listen to it. Is listening to secular music a sin? Um, and I think that this is perhaps one of those areas where uh, there are some things that are considered sinful in a Christian culture or the culture at large in one culture and not in another culture. For, for example, it's been said, and you know, this is somewhat apocryphal, but it's been said that European Christians feel much more free to drink alcohol, uh, whereas fewer American Christians would feel that same freedom, whereas uh, American Christians feel just fine perhaps going over the speed limit, whereas more European Christians would be more fastidious, more strict in observing that. So um, there are differences from culture to culture, and it really does do for us to be respectful of a culture and its sort of perspective on things. Now, 
I lived in Germany for seven years when I was the director of a small international Bible college, and I was also a teacher at Bible college, and those were wonderful years. If my wife is still listening, which it's bedtime for her in Africa right now, so I don't know if she's still listening, but if she is, she would agree. Those were marvelous years, and we still value the wonderful, wonderful friends and colleagues and associates that we've made through those seven years of ministry in Europe, in Germany specifically. And one of the things you learn about German culture is that uh, when it comes to the way that they do things and rules and regulations, they are not into cutting corners at all. Um, To them, it's very important and proper to do things, to use a phrase, by the book. Now, other cultures don't have the same concern. And so what I'm saying is, uh, if you live as a Christian in that culture and as a ministry, you, you need to be more concerned with doing things by the book. And in a culture where it's not as important, I'm, I'm not saying you throw out the book, you don't care, but you, you don't have to be as concerned. And again, we could just draw example after example with other kind of things. So, and I guess what I'm just trying to say is there is a cultural aspect to how secular music is perceived. I don't think that there's anything objectively wrong with listening to secular music unless it overtly glorifies Satan or, you know, whatever. Obviously, there's some forms of art or music or whatever that that would or should be prohibited to a Christian. But in general, um, I, I don't think that there's anything specifically sinful in it but I would want to carry in a cultural consideration. For example, if I were to visit your country and and to do that, I I would try to be sensitive to that. So again, I I hope that answers the question there for you. And I think it's a very good question. And um, it's not that the standard of God changes, but we need to just be aware of what cultural norms are around us and, and, there is definitely a time and a place to challenge cultural norms. We need to be very aware that that's what we're doing and to be very upfront about it when we do it. Okay, let me go on to the next question from Trish. Trish asks, what is the book of Jasher? Somebody in our home group mentioned it and I've never heard of it. Is it part of the Apocrypha? Uh, Trish, I believe the book of Jasher is mentioned in... Uh, is it First Kings or Chronicles? Uh, somewhere in there it's mentioned. Um, actually, let's see here. Uh, Joshua chapter 10, verse 13. Um, is this not written in the book of Jasher? And then Second Samuel, uh, Judah, the Song of the Bow, as it is written in the book of Jasher. So no, I made a mistake. It's not First Kings or Chronicles. It's Joshua and Second Samuel both make mention of the book of Jasher. And it's not part of the Apocrypha. Uh, however, it is um, one of, it's a source book. It was a book, a writing from Old Testament times that in some way was used as a source for a couple of references or the, the same things were recorded in the book of Jasher that were recorded in other places. And so it's just a book of ancient work, of ancient literature. Now, we should not think that our Bibles are incomplete because they don't include the book of Jasher, because we would just simply say that the book of Jasher was not inspired by the Holy Spirit 
except if you want to say any place where it happens to overlap with. Our understanding of the inspiration of the scriptures does not say that every piece of ancient Hebrew or Jewish writing uh, belongs in the Bible, nor do we say that every piece of ancient um, uh, writing from New Testament times goes into our Bible. Let me put it to you this way. If we were to find, for some reason, if we were to find that there was a, uh, uh, if we found a new legitimate letter of Paul, I would not argue that it should be in our New Testament. God has established the canon. It would be of interest. We'd read it. It would have interest to us historically. But uh, we would not regard it as something that was missing from our Bible and that had to be included. Not everything that the Apostle Paul wrote belongs in the Bible. Not every writing from ancient Hebrew times belonged in the collection of books that God chose and his people recognized as belonging to uh, the inspired scriptures. So that's simply how I would answer that, uh, Trish. The book of Jasher is just an ancient piece of Hebrew historical writing mentioned a couple times in the Old Testament, but it doesn't necessarily belong in the biblical correction, even if it were to be found or established. Now, I don't have any doubt that there are books purporting to be the book of Jasher, but to my knowledge, there's nothing um, that anybody would regard as genuine in that regard. Okay, let me go on to the next question from Ronald, who asks, what do you think about extrapolating scripture in fictional form, just as Ben-Hur or the Passion of the Christ? It's a form of, is it a form of adding to the scriptures? Ronald, um, as long as it's understood for what it is, I'm okay with it. As long as somebody understands where the Bible ends and the historical fiction begins. Again, where the Bible ends and the historical fiction begins. So, um, you know, novels about biblical things. Well, I'll give you a great example here um, uh, in, in our modern day and age. Uh, that television series, The Chosen. Popular series, lots of people, I, I talk to people, they love the series The Chosen, and I can see what they like about it. It's a dramatic rendering of the things in the New Testament with a lot of stuff creatively added. Now, ideally, and this isn't always possible for people, ideally people understand this is where the scripture ends and this is where the historic embellishment begins. <laughs> Here would be a, a, a humorous suggestion, and I'm just coming off this at the top of my head. I've never thought or said this before, so maybe I'll regret it later, but I think it would be awesome in that series, The Chosen, if they would have a little red flashing light down at the bottom uh, right-hand corner of the screen, and it just flashed red every time that something was going beyond the biblical description. Because some of the things in that series, The Chosen, I mean, it tries to portray the exact words and the exact circumstance that's described in the Bible. Other times, it's trying to fill in creatively. Uh, for example, and I haven't seen very many episodes of The Chosen, I've seen a few, but um, for example, the Bible says nothing about Peter running a 
um, fishing operation on the Sabbath day and uh, offending the religious leaders of the time. The Bible just doesn't mention anything about it, but that's in the plot line of The Chosen. I do think it would be awesome if they had a little flashing red light when that plot line is being developed and when it's on the screen. So, okay, this is extra biblical, extra biblical. So as long as we understand where the Bible ends and where the historical embellishment begins, I think it's okay. The problem is when people regard it as being all Bible, all Bible. And as long as that problem is avoided, I don't have a problem with it. And I, I, I bring that up and maybe I'm a little more generous to this than other people might be. But one of the reasons I'm kind of gen generous towards it is by the way that I myself preach. Look, when I, I preach, I like to envision the scene that's happening and just talk about it as if it really happened and what's going on in the scene. So, uh, you know, there's some things in the Bible would have a particular smell, but there's not a lot said about the smells. But it, if it would be appropriate situation, I think as a preacher, you can talk about it. again, understanding where the scriptures end and where our interpretation or historical embellishment continues, okay, fine. But really, Ronald, I think that's the line I would be going at, whether it's some kind of novel, a movie, a television series such as The Chosen, if we keep that straight in our mind. Now, I do think that there is a danger in things that would kind of directly purport to be the words of Jesus. Uh, I, I do have a, what I would regard for myself as a significant concern regarding uh, that book that was popular some years back, and I think it's still popular, that book, Jesus Calling. Look, folks, th that purports to be the words of Jesus. And let me just say, it's not the words of Jesus. This, these are the words of a woman, I think her name is Sarah Young, imagining what Jesus might say. And, and it just really needs to be held in mind if somebody would read this book, these are not the words of Jesus. This is what someone imagines the words of Jesus to be. So we wanna be careful that we don't assign things to Jesus or other biblical characters to the inspiration of scripture that aren't there. But I, I personally wanna be somewhat generous uh, in the um, people just imagining and, and so to speak, making a scene biblically come alive. I hope I've explained that well enough for you there, Ronald. And I thank you for that question. I think it is a good question. Bob asks the question, uh, do you believe that the Jews as a race and nation have a place in biblical prophecy in the end times? What do you think about the recent reports of a red heifer being developed in Texas for the use in the upcoming temple? Okay, Bob, first of all, let me say, I haven't heard any of those uh, reports of a red heifer in Texas. Um, I remember some years ago, I mean, it could be 10, 20 years ago, they talked about a red heifer in Israel, a, a red heifer being um, the sacrifice of the red heifer and the ashes from the burning of the red heifer were used in some particular temple ceremonies. And so when most people are talking about the red heifer and get excited about it, it's about a reestablishment of temple ceremonies and rituals. Now, uh, so I don't know anything about that. I haven't heard about the red heifer in Texas. But your question is simply, Bob, 
Uh, do I believe that the Jews as a race and nation have a place in biblical prophecy in the end times? Bob, I can, yes, I do. I, I believe very strongly that God is not finished with the Jewish people, with Israel as a nation or a race, with the covenant descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not finished with them yet, period. And that Jesus said that he would not return until the Jewish people, the descendants of those same ones who rejected him at his arrest and crucifixion, he would not return until they welcomed him back saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, Israel will turn to Christ before the, the final triumphal return of Jesus Christ. And that's part of God's strategy in the very end times. So I, I just wanna say that I believe that yes, very strongly, God is not finished with the Jewish nation as a nation with the uh, people of Israel, with the covenant descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They still have a place in his plan, and it's not a place that's all sweetness and light. It's a place that has a lot of burdens with it as well. And I also believe that because of uh, the enduring role that the Jewish people have in God's unfolding plan of the ages, that that's one of the reasons why uh, Jew hatred is so satanically inspired. That I, I believe that that makes them special targets for hatred uh, it, throughout all the centuries because Satan hates the fact that they have an enduring role in God's unfolding plan of the ages. So thank you for that question there, Bob. Let me go to the next question from Lynn. It says, being a Christian nurse, is it right to have participation in self-assisted dying for my patient? Am I not compromising on what the Bible said? Uh, Lynn, I'm gonna give you an answer that is not, I'm just being very upfront with you. My answer that I'm gonna give you now is not based on a lot of thought or research or reading on it. Maybe if I were to do more thought or research or reading, I might come to a different perspective. But let me just give you a, a, a straight up answer here and just simply say that I, I believe that uh, for the most part, maybe there would be rare, rare exceptions, but for the most part, Christians should not have anything to do with self-assisted suicide. Again, we believe that our lives are in God's hands and it's not right for us to take that upon ourselves or either for our own life or for the lives of others. Um, again, I, I think that mercy killing as it's been described is not a positive development in our culture or in our society as a whole. Again, I'm just trying to be very upfront with you uh, there, Lynn. Your question is, as a Christian nurse, is it okay for you to participate in some level on a patient-assisted suicide? Um, again, I, my, my first reaction is that, uh, no, it, it would be better to remove yourself for conscience sake uh, from that situation. Uh, next question, um, Amy Cat asks, how should Christ followers celebrate his birth? 
Well, um, they should celebrate it, Amy, first of all, according to their Christian conscience. The reason why I say that is that there have been Christians through the centuries who have felt that Christians should not celebrate uh, Christmas. For example, um, the pilgrims, that uh, group of Puritans who came over in the days of the colonial uh, settlement of what is today the United States, the pilgrims, they didn't think that people should celebrate Christmas. They didn't do it. They thought it was, uh, you know, something that was secular and that they should not be bothered with. So uh, there are people who think that way. And I, again, I would just regard it as something regarding Christian conscience. However, if one's conscience allows them, I would say, to celebrate Christmas, then do it with celebration. We are celebrating the fact of the incarnation, that the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, at some definite point in history, added humanity to his deity and came and was born as a babe in Bethlehem and changed history, not just on this world, but for all eternity forever. And that's something we're celebrating. So have a party with your family, exchange gifts, Use special lights and decorations. Oh, you should see Christmas at our home. It's beautiful. Uh, it's a worthy celebration of this eternity-changing moment in history when God the Son added humanity to his deity. Now, again, that's if someone's Christian conscience uh, permits them to commemorate Christmas. If not, well, then that's between them and the Lord, and I make no judgment upon them. But we're going to have a wonderful Christmas this year. And uh, if your conscience allows you, I hope you do too. Next question comes from uh, David. How was it that the Nephilim were after the flood? David, for some reason, this question has been coming up a lot. And I'll give you my take on this. Now, again, look, if you're not satisfied with my take, look, there's people out there who believe differently. And I, I don't believe that this is something that is entirely cut and dry, um, but I don't believe that there were genetic Nephilim after the flood. Now, I, I, I do believe that there were people that were named Nephilim or called Nephilim, but to my understanding of the flood, that only eight survived the flood and according to Jude, God imprisoned the angels who transgressed, and I think it applies to those who transgressed in those days before the flood, and did not allow them to do whatever kind of intermarriage or intermingling there was between the sons of God and the daughters of men. God said no more of that after the flood. Now, why then were there some people called Nephilim or associated well, because they were just large people and they were sort of connected in memory to um, those ancient people. They, they were just, you know, they, they would afterwards, they would just call large people. Oh, man, they're like the Nephilim. And so it's describing people who were legitimately not large, but not what we would call genetic Nephilim uh, that seemed to exist before the flood. That would be the best answer I could give because to me, and again, I know for some people that's not a satisfactory answer, 
But to me, the alternatives are even worse. Uh, what are the alternatives? Well, uh, that the Bible is wrong in its description of a global flood. That's one possibility. Um, that whatever Satan and his angels were able to do before the flood, they're also able to do after the flood and they keep on doing it. If that's the case, I don't know why the human race isn't overwhelmed uh, with whatever it was happening before the flood. So again, I, I would just say that people were called that, um, some people sort of in memory of those uh, pre-flood people, but not with any genetic connection to it. Again, I recognize that some people would think that's not a very good answer, but that's the best answer I, I could give on that, um, David. Uh, Else uh, gives this question, Elsa. Elsa asks, when praying for unsaved children, is it biblical to cover them with the blood of Jesus or to claim their soul for God? I hear this often. Well, Elsa, these are figures of speech. And really the figure of speech expresses a particular kind of heart. I, I mean, if you think about it, um, to pray that some one's child would be covered with the blood of Jesus. I mean, what does that really mean? I mean, they don't mean in a literal sense, of course, but what they mean is, Lord, I, I want what Jesus did on the cross to count for them, for their sins to be forgiven, for, for their, uh, you know, stain of sin to be taken away and righteousness bestowed upon them in light of what Jesus did on the cross. So really that's what's being spoken about there. So again, as a figure of speech, sometimes we're uncomfortable with these figures of speech and I get it. You know, I mean, sometimes figures of speech make us uncomfortable, but, but especially recognizing the heart behind the figure of speech, um, I, I, I don't have much of a problem with it. Um, and then you also ask about this phrase, um, to claim their soul for God. Again, it, it's just a way of impassioned prayer of saying, Lord, I want them to be saved. Um, I, I, I don't think that that in fact saves them, but there's nothing wrong with the impassioned prayer to God. The illustration that has been given is based sometimes on something that, oh my, is it what Rachel or Leah said? I forget, you know, one of the wives of Jacob. Give me children else I die. And it's that kind of pleading with God. God, give me this, grant me miracles, else I die. And that has been used um, through a lot of Christian, perhaps devotional literature. Uh, it's been used to sort of express the thought of impassioned, um, what is sometimes called importunate prayer, which is almost like rude prayer, rude if you could put the two words together, respectfully rude prayer, you know, bold prayer. I guess that's a better word. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I think these are people being bold with prayer. And so it, it can be fine, properly understood. I, I suppose somebody could get too arrogant in their praying and, and that's never good. And so, uh, but just the phrase in itself to me wouldn't alarm me. I, I would just regard it as a figure of speech. Let me continue on from a question from Barry, who says, 
Could you explain the Song of Ascents, example, Psalm 133? How were these songs used in ancient Israel? Okay, Barry, let me give you a recommendation. And the recommendation is simply this, that you would go to my commentary on the Songs of Ascent. Um, and in the introduction to that commentary, I know that I give quite a explanation of what the Songs of Ascent were all about. I'm looking it up now on my Enduring Word app, because by the way, we do have an app. Okay, I'm looking at uh, Psalm 120, and I'm just gonna read to you from my introduction there. Psalm 120 is the first of a series of 15 Psalms, each with the title, A Song of Ascents. The reason for this collection and arrangement is not precisely stated. Many different explanations have been given to these degrees or steps or ascents. They've been called the stairs of the temple songs, the step songs, the gradual songs, the progression songs, the progression from Babylon's, the procession, I should say, from Babylon songs, the pilgrim festival songs. Probably the best explanation is the last one listed that these were songs for the people of God as they made their pilgrim journey to Jerusalem and the temple at the three appointed feasts, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. So again, uh, I would just recommend to you that, that these were probably songs that were sung by pilgrims as they ascended, climbed, made their way up to Jerusalem for the three annual feasts. That's sort of the majority opinion, and I think it's valid. Uh, but if you want a little more in-depth, go to my commentary, EnduringWord.com, and take a look at my comments on Psalm 120 on the introduction there, and I think that'll be helpful for you. Okay, on to the next uh, question from Mark. How did God pour out his wrath on Jesus while he was on the cross when wrath is an attribute of God and not some liquid? Well, Mark, um, you know, again, these are figures of speech, but there are a few places where the Bible speaks of the wrath of God being poured out um, in judgment. And, and part of the idea of pouring out of God's wrath is connected with the idea that it's completely emptied. If you have a cup and you know it's full of wine or whatever, water, and you turn it up on its end, it is completely emptied, it is poured out. And so when the Bible is using that imagery of the cup of God's wrath, of God's wrath being poured out, uh, it, it's using that imagery in that sense of it being completely delivered. So yes, um, obviously, obviously, the wrath of God is not a liquid, but it can be completely um, distributed or placed. Uh, it can be emptied, so to speak, upon a particular thing or person. And that's the terminology. Matter of fact, that's sort of a terminology I use a lot. Maybe it's just a habit of speaking for me, but the, the, the wrath of God being poured out upon Jesus. Again, we're not talking about as if some liquid was poured from the sky upon Jesus on the cross, but that the wrath, the judgment of God was completely emptied upon Jesus at the cross. And the pouring is just a biblical image or terminology 
meant to express that idea of a complete distribution, an emptying, just as uh, a liquid completely leaves a cup when it's turned over, when it's poured out. Hope that's helpful for you there, uh, Mike. Mark, thank you for that question. Jeanette asks the question, what does it actually mean that God created man in our image, in the likeness of God? Well, again, uh, that is a great question there. And I'm going to reference back, if I can, once again, to my commentary. This time I'm going to go to uh, my commentary on the book of Genesis. Because I do remember, I think I have a pretty adequate description there of um, being made in the image of God. I'm sorry, I think it would be one back here. I'm looking at Genesis chapter one. It's a long chapter, okay. An understanding of who man is begins with knowing that we're made in the image of God. Again, I'm reading to you from my commentary on Genesis chapter one. Man is different from every other order of created being because he's created, he has a created consistency with God. This means that God created man to be like him, to be consistent with deity. There is a compatibility between the human and the divine that there is not between the animal and the divine that there is not between, I believe, between the angelic and the divine. God created humanity with a compatibility with, now again, the human is not the divine. We're not trying to say that human beings are gods. We're just simply saying that there is an aspect of compatibility between the human and the divine that does not exist between the animal and the divine or the angelic and the divine. Um, there are several specific things that I would say that in man that make us to be made in the image of God. It means that we possess personality, knowledge, feelings, and a will. Of course, this sets us apart from all animal life and plant life. It also shows that human beings possess morality. We are able to make moral judgments and we have a conscience, but it also means that humans possess spirituality. We are made for communion with God, and it's on the spirit level, so to speak, that we communicate with God. You can look more to my commentary on Genesis chapter one. I have a bit more of an explanation of what it means that we are made in the image of God. But the basic thing that I think is stressed by the scriptures is that there is a compatibility between the human and the divine that we should uh, pay attention to. So Jeanette, that's really what I would say. The, the main sense there is one of compatibility. Okay, continuing on a question from Daniel. Uh, can a believer forfeit their salvation? Daniel, uh, that's a great question. It's a question that believers love to argue about. And boy, believe me, sometimes the arguments in that question get so heated. And I'm just gonna answer it like this. Daniel, an apparent believer can forfeit their salvation. Let's just keep it at that. Someone who is apparently a believer can forfeit their salvation. 
Now, I, I know people who don't believe that it's possible for a believer to forfeit their salvation will just say, oh, well, then they were never saved to begin with. Okay, fine. I, I'm not going to debate that point. Is that, if that's how you want to frame it, I, I'm okay with that. But you have to admit that that person was an apparent believer. And then they fell away. So whether or not you want to just say of somebody who falls away and is demonstrated at the end that they do not belong to Christ, you know, they, they, the last 20 years of their life, they work to bring people out of the Christian faith and they die cursing Jesus Christ. I mean, nobody thinks that they're going to heaven. Well, if at one time it appeared that they were saved, then that's what it was. They appeared that they were saved. So I, I think sometimes that we, we need to understand two things concurrently. Number one, there is tremendous uh, security for the believer in Jesus Christ. Oh, how wonderful that is. How secure we are in Jesus Christ. How beautiful, how powerful, how wonderful that is. We are secure in Jesus Christ. We don't keep ourselves saved. Jesus holds on to us. Okay? So we, we, we love to assure the believer of their salvation. At the same time, no one should become presumptuous and no one should feel, well, I made a decision or a, you know, profession of faith 30 years ago. So it doesn't matter what I believe or how I live or what I go on now. I'm fine with the Lord. Nobody should think that way. And that person just should get a very strong exhortation, encouragement. Hey, you need to keep walking with the Lord. So again, um, I would just simply phrase it. An apparent believer can forfeit their salvation. Um, I, I would probably lean on to say someone who's a true believer cannot. But an apparent one, and all we have to go on, at least from the external, is uh, the appearances of things. So let's not, if we want to argue, no, a true believer cannot forfeit their salvation. Let's not forget that an apparent believer certainly can. So we, we just keep it on that level. Okay, uh, Miss C says, asks, how is it their prayers are helpful to prodigals if they are given free will to make their decisions? Well, Miss C, that's a great question. Um, and the whole matter is to simply say, um, God can change people's hearts. Remember that proverb, that the heart of a king is in the hand of the Lord and he can guide it wherever he wishes. And I believe that's true, don't you? Now, if God holds the heart of a king in his heart and can guide it wherever he wishes, then um, it's okay for us to pray that God would change the heart of our prodigal children, of our friends, our neighbors, our you know relatives, whatever it would be. We should pray and pray that God removes the veil that blinds them from seeing Jesus Christ and their need for Jesus Christ. And that people should really grab onto those things and have that veil cleared away and that they can uh, see their need and the great provision that God has offered in the person and work of Jesus Christ and see it with clear, clean, so to speak, eyes. 
so yes, I, I believe people have a real choice. I prefer the phrase real choice rather than free will because uh, there's all sorts of things that might bind our will in some way. But e even with whatever those things are, I think at the end of the day, people have a real choice, not a fake choice, a real choice. And uh, we can pray that God would take away blinding and veiling influences so that people can see their need and God's provision clearly. Uh, Marceline, I hope I'm saying that name correct. Thank you for your question, Marceline. Asks, is it bad to not always worship first thing in the morning? Um, Marcel, Marceline, I should say, look, it's a wonderful thing to worship God the first thing you wake up. But a lot of people, they brush their teeth and use the bathroom first before they do anything else. I, I, I wouldn't get legalistic about it. It's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing to have time with God in the morning, to, to dedicate the early part of the day to him so that he would be honored and glorified. But, you know, for some people, they're at their worst in the morning. And to such people, I say, give God your best. Spend time with the Lord later in the day when you're at your best. So uh, we dare not become legalistic about such things, even while recognizing that it can be a beautiful thing for somebody to simply do that, to give God that early part of the day. So we, we don't need to become legalistic about it, but we can um, just simply take the, uh, the day as it is. And um, again, worship God all through the day, uh, but nothing wrong with starting early on it. Uh, last question here comes from Natalia who asks, what do you think about vaccination for 12 years old children? In Canada, my son cannot attend any sport. Natalia, um, I really believe that this is a matter of Christian conscience. And if God has so moved you and your conscience, again, you're not saying this just because of, uh, of peer pressure, you're not doing it just because of social media buzz or what you're in the kid, but you're doing this genuinely out of Christian conscience then Natalia, I would say then, then stay strong in your convictions. If someone is refusing vaccination for themselves or on behalf of the out of Christian conscience, again, I'm separating doing it out of Christian conscience as just doing it out of peer pressure or social media pressure or cable news influence, whatever it be. But if it's out of genuine Christian conscience, then I would say stand firm for that bear whatever consequences need to be born. Uh, but I, I don't think that God wants us to violate our Christian conscience just because a law gets passed about it. Um, I sometimes bring it back to the issue of meat sacrifice to idols. That was a big area of Christian conscience that the uh, first century church had to deal with. You read a lot about it in first Corinthians, also some about it in Romans. And I'm not going to get into the whole details, but I would just say that a believer who felt they should not eat meat sacrificed to idols, it should not change the equation if the government commanded you to eat meat sacrificed to idols. So again, um, 
I, I believe that if somebody, now, I'll just say it one more time because I want everybody to be clear. I talked about this last week in our Q&A. We, we need to be discerning and make sure our convictions are based on what we would call a true Christian conscience, not peer pressure, not social media pressure, not you know uh, news media influence. But if it's on genuine Christian conscience, then I would support it and say that uh, you, you shouldn't give in. Uh, uh, not unless God would move your conscience otherwise. That's just simply how I would say it. And uh, I feel for believers who are troubled by this and uh, and are dealing with it in their own way. So that's how I would address that. That was our last question for the day. I hope you've enjoyed our time together again. Um, just let everybody know, of course, I'm not in my normal place. Uh, here I am, I'm uh, at... Camden City Park, looking out upon the softball field, upon which nobody's practicing yet. Somebody was getting the field ready, but nobody's there yet. And uh, it's a beautiful fall day out here. The trees are changing colors, and I'm speaking to you from the cab of a rental pickup truck. And hopefully next week, the plan is that we will not have a Q&A next Thursday because uh, it's Thanksgiving Day, and instead we're going to release a special video next Thursday. Uh, I hope you'll watch it and tune into it. Uh, subscribe on our YouTube feed. Click for notifications. Of course, click the likes and all that. But we're going to release a special gift video to you next week. Uh, I hope you'll enjoy it. But we're not going to have our normal Q&A next week because it's going to be Thanksgiving weekend. God bless all of you. God bless our TWR 360 audience. Thank you to Devin, our moderator, and Andrea, a support staff back in Santa Barbara, California. God bless all of you. So pleased that you could join us. Uh, God bless you and meet again in two weeks where we'll be gathered together on another Thursday. Thanks for being able to join us. It's a, it's a great, great time that we can have together. God bless you. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.